Thank you, Alex. It's good to be with you guys today. If you have uh, little ones you'd like them in Sunday school, they can be dismissed at this time. The foyer teachers will meet you there and take care of them until you're done. For the rest of you, you can turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Will you do that? 2 Corinthians 12. It's a fun day today. We're looking forward to some stuff afterwards. We'll talk a little bit more after we're all done here this morning. God's plan for a healthy church is study through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 11 through 13. Marks the ministry and particularly Paul's apostleship. We began this look at this passage two weeks ago, and we looked at uh, verse 11 only and kind of set the stage for what we would see. I'd like you to read together with me. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that around you or just read and follow along in the copy that uh, translation you use and memorize, and uh, we'll stay together. Verse 11, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles, verse 13, for in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Stop right there. There are uh, many things in our world that are not what they seem. Uh, certainly gemstones are regularly faked. Phony sports memorabilia abounds. List seems endless. Fake IDs. Anywhere you can make some money certainly uh, draws the fraudulent uh, people to it. We see another type of fraud from a research paper written by a retired FBI agent, Alan Etzel and John Baer, entitled Degree Mills, the Billion Dollar Industry. He's quoted there as saying, our best estimate is that there are 5,000 diploma mills at any one time, and probably the same number of fake accrediting agencies. Alan Etzel's a 31-year FBI veteran who helped in the FBI dip scam, uh, dip, a scam sting where they uncovered and, and put out of business thousands of uh, phony diploma mills and uh, accrediting agencies. He says, quote, I'm not paranoid, but it's everywhere. Federal agents identified in this dip scan 12,500 graduates of the 40 fake schools and those who had purchased bogus degrees, including federal, state, and county employees. It's a long paper, and I'm going to kind of sum it up for you, but it was very interesting read. They said that um, at the time of dip scan, there were more than 35,000 uh, federal employees just in the D.C. area who had fake diplomas, which would increase their income and their retirement, both more than 35,000. That's all... Uh, uh, and Bear's co-author told CBS Money Watch, quote, graduates were employed in business, education, law enforcement, military, and in the medical field, end quote. All the way back in 2006, a paper published by the Hofstra Labor and Employment Law Journal cited congressional testimony for some startling data, including an estimate from the National Council for Accreditation of Teacher Education that one of the six education, one in six education doctorates are fraudulent, one in six education doctorates. Quote, even more disturbing, an extrapolation of the percentage of people holding fake diplomas in the medical field revealed potentially 2 million bogus practitioners in the United States. 2 million. Creola Johnson, a law professor at Ohio State University, says the testimonial evidence concluded that at least 500,000 Americans perhaps hold fake degrees. End quote. A really disturbing find in the paper is that many of those holding fake MDs are small town, quote, small town doctors that have military field medic training and can do stitches or an injection, said Bear, who, like Etzel, works as a consultant. Quote, many are smart enough to know if they can handle a case. If they can't handle a case, they'll pass it on. 
we can only thank the Lord for that. Some, however, do not pass on cases they can't handle, and that results in medical malpractice deaths every single year, end quote. And Paul, I would pro propose to you, the uh, reason why I read that, is dealing with such a situation all the way back in the first century. Part of the challenge of verse-by-verse -verse teaching through the Word of God is just dealing with whatever comes next. And, and although I would propose to you that picking a different topic every Sunday is much more difficult than teaching through the Word of God, at least if you're picking a topic every Sunday, you get to pick the topic. But with exegetical, expository, verse-by-verse, passage-by-passage types of teaching, sometimes you come to a narrative, uh, sometimes you come to a parable, or it's an illustration, or sometimes a historical account. It can be doctrine, it can be reproof, correction, or instruction. Uh, they come however they come, and in, order, in the order that God carried along the writer to pen it. And they just come in any of those ways, and that's part of the fun and the challenge of just taking the Word of God as it comes. And we're getting to the end of, of 2 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 12 in a section that we've titled Marks of Ministry, and in particular, we're looking at a defense Paul's making. But this time, he's talking about the signs of an apostle. And here is where it can be challenging because Paul is dealing with counterfeit apostles, with false teachers. He's pointing out the differences, and he has to say some hard things, uh, which then we have to explain. And although it would be easy to read this passage and just give it a nod and move on, I believe that would be unwise because if the same thing has been going on throughout church history and is still going on today, then the passage requires some reflection and some application. And by its nature, exegetical expository teaching will sometimes require, uh, my words, a hermeneutic that allows for a homiletical footnote. In other words, sometimes you have to explain something before you can explain the passage. And that's what we're doing now. And that's what we did last Sunday as well. And we'll finish, Lord willing, this Sunday, today. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, of course. We see that. He, that means he was a messenger of Jesus. And he was sent by Christ to speak the word of God. And God basically moved him along and gave him the words to say. And, and that's another thing we remember about doing this kind of study where every verse is ex exegeted. Because uh, it's not just an exercise in academics. And I know you understand this that we want to get it right and we want to make sure we've got it right and we break it down as, as small as we can to make sure we understand it and that it fits everywhere else. If we define a word, we should be able to pull it out and plug it in somewhere else and it should fit and then you've got it right. But it's not just that. It's not just academics and making sure we know uh, what it says, what it means by what it says, how that applies to us. But also remember, most importantly, that these are the words of God himself. And so that by, them, that by itself require, requires that we treat them carefully and responsibly, and, and we have a responsibility to respond to them. We say they have authority, and then we act on it, and we show that it has authority. So Paul's carried along by, by God and what, what to write, and he proclaimed it, and, and the issue with our passage really is, how did people know that he actually was a spokesperson, a spokesman for God? How could that be validated? And we saw that the church itself validated Paul and God's message that he brought, the planted church in Corinth. He said, you're my letter, you're my bio, if you will, the fact that the church is there reproducing, it's there uh, doing ministry, that is a testimony to Paul's legitimacy. We also saw that Paul's manner of life validated him, that he had the suffering that went along with those Jesus said were his apostles, the true apostles would suffer, he suffered, and also that he didn't take any support, also helped to validate that Paul was the real deal. And then we got to verse 12, and in verse 12, we read Paul's third validation, and, and he says this, the sign of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And so Paul introduces this third essential qualification 
the signs of an apostle. And, and the signs there that he has had have been there in abundance, he said, given to validate the apostles' ministry. And they were worked out, he said, among you. So they were there and saw what happened. So it's not a secret. So Paul says, I'm an apostle by virtue of the fact that supernatural power is at work in me. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, so you saw it. And at the end of the verse, by signs and wonders and powers, literally, powers, mighty deeds, that's dunamis in the Greek, that's where we get our word dynamite. So basically he's saying, look, I'm doing, I, I'm, I'm going to talk about power. And what did occur was very obviously the power of God at work. They saw miracles, supernatural work that no natural human explanation, and we looked at much of that last week. They saw things that caused them to be astonished. They were signs pointing to Paul as a true apostle. They validated the message that he brought. And we looked at that word signs, and, and it's very much like we understand it in the dictionary. It just points a certain way. So what Paul was doing pointed to something. It identifies some certain thing. An undeniable, unusual circumstance typically that draws attention to someone or something. And, and here it's used in the broadest possible sense, so it's not a secret what he's saying. And there were a number of specific requirements uh, for an apostle that are impossible for anyone today. We saw this last time. Just to sum them up, these include, number one, an apostle was someone who had been called by Jesus during his ministry and was an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. And only a select few of that first generation of Christians would meet this requirement. Obviously, nobody today could qualify for the gift of an apostle if an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. Number two, uh, they had unique authority to receive special revelation, we saw this last week, from the Lord, and their calling and commissioning by Jesus included, he said, the ability to receive and communicate divine truth. And then third, Paul adds to that here, the gift of an apostle was accompanied by miraculous signs in order to, we saw this last time, lay a foundation only has to be laid once. And sign gifts were just that. They pointed to and they verified the speaker or the message. And then from 1 Corinthians 15, 8, we saw, and we read this last time, that Paul was, in essence, the last person that Jesus Christ personally appeared to and commissioned. In fact, he said of himself as an apostle born out of time, the last one, and Christ counted him worthy and appeared to him. And we know this, and we looked at all of this over the last several weeks, so we won't go back over that. And then Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, we saw what Jesus gave them, what kind of power we were talking about. And verse 1 says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. And so, number one, he gave them miraculous power, supernatural power over unclean spirits to cast them out. Power over Satan's kingdom and his demons. Number two, he gave them power to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, healing power with no limitations. And number three, we know later in Acts chapter two, and we've looked at this at another study, so we can go back over this extensively. He granted them the gift of a known language, unknown to the speaker, known to the hearer, once again, verifying the message and the receipt of salvation before the church was established and as a sign of chastening to the Jews for rejecting Christ. And we looked at that at length in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, and you can go back and look at that if you need to uh, and listen to those messages. Now, we saw from Acts 19, 11 and 20 that, uh, in other places that God performed extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Uh, God healed the sick. He cast out evil spirits through him. In fact, it says in Acts 19 that even articles of clothing that touched Paul went and did what they were supposed to do. 
That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Paul never touted this. He never said, hey, I'm so good that I don't even have to be there. Miracles can be done without my presence. But we know that that was the case, and it said that people were amazed that that went on. In Acts 13, Paul blinded Elymas. Do you remember the sorcerer who followed him around and constantly gave him a hard time? He turned around and blinded him so he couldn't follow him anymore. A practical type of miracle. Acts 14, the healing of the cripple. He brought Eutychus back to life after he fell out of a window during a long sermon. Malta, he was delivered from a snake bite that should have killed him. And then later on, he healed uh, Publius, remember, the, one of the leaders of Malta. And then the people were amazed and then listened to what he said. We also saw last time that neither Paul nor any of the other demonstrating sign gifts ever claimed the power to be theirs. They were performed, and it's passive, so that means it was at work. The power of God at work through them, a few chosen individuals for a short amount of time. And signs basically indicate something. They have effect. They have intent. This is not for show. Miracles were not a performance. They weren't entertainment for the crowds. All of the healing and all the casting out of demons and all the other miracle gifts were not, and this is very important, not just to deliver people from the demons and make them feel better. It's important to understand that. The miracle was just a sign pointing to something. And what was it pointing to? It was pointing to the true apostles, signs of a true apostle, the message that they were going to give. And mark this. And this is very important to realize, and we're going to kind of support this in just a minute. If anybody can do them for any reason, then they can't be the signs of a true apostle, and then they would have no reason to exist. And I think we can see that pretty clearly from the language. The purpose of the miracle, then, was to sign a sign to verify the speaker. And it just seems very consistent with the Word of God. And, and if God ever gave anybody the ability to do miracles, beloved, to heal and cast out demons, speak in tongues, he would give it to someone who was, this is important, speaking new revelation. Because that's the pattern, isn't it? All the way through. Or he'd give them on the mission field and we wouldn't have to spend years in language training to understand the language because that would be the pattern, right? It would verify the speaker and it would verify the message, except we don't see that. And so knowing what we know about real gifts, once the revelation is given, then you don't need to authenticate anybody or anything because the revelation is there. If I want to verify a preacher today, I don't look for a miracle. In fact, if he says he's doing a miracle, that pretty much disqualifies him at that point because he wouldn't classify in the small group of Christians who would qualify for the things we just saw were the qualifications of an apostle. But if I don't need to see a miracle, right? All I have to do is look at the Bible and see if, this, if the message is true. The purpose of miracles was to verify the apostles in a time when there was not yet the writing of the New Testament. To recognize them not as miracle workers, but as true apostles who preached the true gospel and wrote the true word of God. And, and we saw last time, we saw the same thing in the Old Testament with Moses and Aaron. Verifying the proclamation with God's power in miracles. True? That's precisely why they did what they did, wasn't it? It's so they could get Pharaoh's attention and the Hebrew children would look at them and say, whoa, and be in awe and then listen to what they say. That's precisely why he did it. The purpose of miracles was to verify the apostles at a time when there was not the writing in the New Testament and, and to recognize them not as miracle workers, right? but as true apostles who preach the true word of God. And, and the thing about it, what about Elijah and Elisha and others? I mean, miracles work through these men for a short time. Again, to verify the message, to verify the messenger. And, and we see the same thing in the New Testament in the person of Christ. Jesus comes, how do you know he's the Messiah? How can the people know what he says is true? Miracles, signs pointing him to him as the true one of God, and, and the miracles that pointed to his Messiahship. 
numerous times he said to them, if you don't believe the words I say, what does he say? Believe in the things that I do among you, right? Your sins are forgiven. Oh, how, who has the power to forgive sins? So that you'll know I have the power to forgive sin, what? Stand up and walk. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or you're healed? Well, you can check and see if you're healed, but you don't know if your sins are forgiven. So we verified it by what? A miracle. Not for just the sole purpose of healing someone, but so that they would know that what he said was true. The miracles pointed to his messiahship, his power over the kingdom of darkness, casting out demons, power over the fallen world, his power over the natural world by miracles uh, that he did of, you know, walking on water and changing water into wine, and feeding of the multitudes of people, miracles of healing. And following him came the apostles. There comes the preachers of Jesus. They're going to preach the true gospel. They're going to write the true word of God. They're going to set up the church and God's God authenticates them with miracle power. Miracles work through these men, again, for a short period of time to verify the message and verify the messenger. And so we can see this very clear pattern. Uh, why would God need to verify the message or the messenger today? Well, he doesn't need to because you can tell whether somebody's false teacher or not because you can compare, compare what they say to what this says. And you can tell whether someone has the correct message because it's in the Bible. And so you just read it and say, okay, no, that's not right. Or that's perfect. That's exactly right. It was never a sign, beloved, that could be claimed like we see today. Never. It wasn't a sign that was supposed to entertain the crowd like we see today. Or heal them or deliver them from demons or help them hear the word of God in their own language necessarily. All of the miracle gifts were given for the purpose that they could know the speaker's message was from God and the speaker was approved by God. And all of that so, mark this, they could hear the saving gospel of the word of his grace. And that was the point of all of it. They could hear the saving gospel and the word of his grace. That's the reason why it was there. And the Bible is very consistent about this. It's not done in secret. Signs and wonders and miracles, all referring to the miracles as to their indication and their effect and their intent. And all through the scriptures and certainly in the New Testament, were through the apostles and others in the early church to authenticate the true message and the true messenger. And once the scripture was written, that part of redemptive history closed. Now, we went over some of that last time, some of that's new for you, and I told you that we would try to correlate what we see today with what went on and let you make those decisions now and come to that, the correct conclusions. Some people want us to believe that miracles are just normal, everyday fare, and you should be able to see miracles going on all the time. Now, we, we've kind of dumbed down miracles because we'll say something like this. We'll say, I found a parking spot at River Ridge Mall on Black Friday, and that was a miracle. Well, it wasn't, but we understand it was facetious. But there are really people that say that in order for you to know that God's at work, you should just be able to sort of bask in all the signs and the wonders and the miracles all around you all the time. In fact, some people believe this so strongly that they can take the most ordinary thing and somehow craft a miracle out of that in their own imagination. But as we've seen, miracles are events that are not explicable by natural or scientific law. They occurred in a very limited time in the scripture. And we've seen them. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Christ and the apostles. Now, throughout the thousands of years of time, and I need you to, to, to grasp this, throughout the thousands of years of time, only these times do we see God working through a human agent to work miracles, and all for the same reasons. All throughout all the time, very compressed times that God was doing this for very specific reasons. Now, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 11. Hold your finger here. I want you to read along with me. I, you'll enjoy this, this cross-reference. 
And just as a footnote, we know from the scriptures that there will be another time where God will do this. And that's during the tribulation period. And there will be tribulation worked by God and catastrophe brought judgment for a specific purpose during the time of the tribulation period. And I'm just going to give you this because it's going to fit our pattern, and I think you'll see this right away. So Revelation, Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, start there. And I'll give you some verse cues. We can stay together. So John's getting this vision from the Lord, and he's telling him all that's going to happen. And he says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will, mark this, prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So it's about three and a half years. They're going to be forth-telling. So that's reiterating the commands of God in the gospel. So again, as we've talked about before, when you see the word prophecy, don't automatically assume somebody's already always telling the, fu- the future. T- about 90% of things that are referred to as prophecy in both the Old and New Testament are not foretelling the future. They are foretelling what God has said. Even the Old Testament prophets, would, would they are considered prophets. Why are they? Because God spoke to them and they told everybody what he said. That's basically what that looks like. So these guys are going to come and they're going to prophesy for 1260 days during the tribulation and they're going to reiterate the commands of God in the gospel. Verse 4. And they're described a little bit. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So they are his messengers, his witnesses, as are the 144,000 saved Jews who are witnessing to the world in every place. They're sealed. They're going out. They're speaking the word of God. God is gracious even in this time period of judgment because he wants people to be saved. He takes no delight in the destruction of an evil person. He always wants people to come to the knowledge of salvation. So he makes sure this is happening. And so he's sending them out and he sends these two prophets and they are, they are, uh, uh, they are prophesying. So they're telling and reiterating the commands of God. And, and so... And I wonder what God will do to verify their message and the messengers to an unredeemed world where the church no longer is present. I wonder what he's going to do. Well, we don't have to have many guesses because he's going to tell us in verse 5. Look there. And if anyone wants to harm them, it's the two witnesses, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So uh, that's a good thing, right? I mean, anybody's kind of running up with an explosive vest on. They're not going to get anywhere close to them. They're going to be incinerated. Anybody who wants to shoot them, whatever it happens, and people, they're going to make, make people mad. This is an unredeemed world, a world that's been, uh, is in tribulation. The church is gone, and uh, they don't want to hear the gospel. And uh, even the Lord is sending angels that fly through the heavens and proclaim them to look to the Lord. And people in their rebellion, it's a, God's vindication, really, uh, people in the rebellion won't look to him. And so uh, they can incinerate their enemies, and if anyone wants to harm them, they'll be killed in this way. Verse 6, these have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now that sounds familiar to me, doesn't it, to you? That sounds a little bit like Elijah's time and Elijah, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit like Moses and Aaron's time and Joshua. I mean, many of the things that went on during that time we're seeing right here. So it's not surprising that these things are going on. Verse 7, when they have finished their testimony... So that's another way they're just referring to, so he says they're going to prophesy, but it says we're finished their testimony again, just testifying of the things that God is and does. Very simple, straightforward, things that you've heard all your life. If you've been in the church, you understand these things. And this was a very short time again, about three and a half years, very compressed of the extremely short time the unredeemed world still has left. I mean, we're coming to the end of the world as we know it, we're going to move into the thousand-year reign of Christ and then on into the eternal state. So the world is coming to an end, and as we understand it, it's coming to an end. But it's a very, very compressed short time. So when they finish their testimony, the beast, that represents the Antichrist, 
that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them, verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Now we know where that is, right? That's Jerusalem. Verse 9, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb. That's nice, huh? Kind of disgusting. And verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they'll send gifts to one another. Be dead witnesses day. Isn't the world great? We no longer have them anymore, no more incinerating anybody, and so it's just going to be a real big party on the world because these guys are gone. They send gifts to one another because those two prophets, this is how they looked at it, tormented those who dwell on the earth by prophesying and testifying. So real torment there, right? Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, the breath of God will come into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who were watching them. So one more miracle performed by God to verify their message in the messenger. That's going to be pretty amazing, isn't it? So they've been laying in the street for three and a half days. They're going to be pretty disgusting, and the Lord is going to raise them up. Verse 12, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, so they even get to hear the voice of the Lord or perhaps the archangel, someone speaking, and then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. Okay, stop right there. So, again, miracles performed for a very short time for a specific purpose to produce wonder and awe and point towards something to verify the messenger or messengers and the message. Not to destroy men or punish wickedness necessarily, but to make sure that it drew attention to God is not willing that any perish but come to the, all come to the knowledge of salvation. To bring people to the knowledge so that they can come and be saved to reach out to rebellious men and women with God's saving message, even at the ninth hour, he's going to verify. Every single example, beloved, every single example, very brief. And we also know like, that like during the time of Moses and Pharaoh where there were false miracle workers, uh, during the time of the tribulation, there's going to be false miracle workers. In fact, Paul reminds the church in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, of what he taught them before. He says to them, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So he's been talking about this, obviously. Now he writes back to them and reminds them of what he told them about. He says, and you know what restrains him. He's speaking of the Antichrist in this context. So that in his time, he will be revealed when it's the right time. God knows when that's going to be. He'll come. For the mystery, though, he says, of lawlessness is already at work. So he's referred to as the man of lawlessness, but lawlessness is already in the culture. And listen, if you live through 2020, you know that lawlessness is already at work. Do we not? And we still see it today. Lawlessness, lawlessness is at work in a greater and greater way. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains him will do so until he's taken out of the way. So at some point when the church is pulled out of the world, there is the restraining, the standing in the way. That's what it means. St- something standing in the way of what he's going to do is removed and allows him to do for a very short time what he's going to do. Verse 8, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end by the appearance of his coming. So in order for them not to be too afraid of the fact that this lawless guy is actually going to rule, Paul just reminds them his end is sure. He's going to have a short time where he's going to do this, and then the Lord's going to slay him by the word of his mouth. So just some encouragement there in the midst of these very difficult things. Verse 9, that is the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. So the Antichrist obviously works the works of Satan, all false uh, uh, people who do uh, work, work in the activity of Satan. Mark this, with all power, signs, and mark it, false wonders, verse 10, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, 
because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send them upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. And beloved, I would say that there is some of that going on today. Both those who deceive and those who believe that which is false. Because there are no obvious, verifiable miracles occurring through people. Oh, there's plenty of people who say stuff is going on. And there are people impersonating apostles and showing false wonders with all the deceptions of wickedness. This is precisely why Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There are false apostles in the church, obviously doing false things. Paul said the signs of a true apostle were with me. So obviously he's dealing with this issue. We see they're going to deal with the issue in the future. Moses and Aaron dealt with it back during their time. Elijah and Elijah dealt with it, did they not? Isn't that one of the greatest stories of Elijah as he deals with false prophets on Mount Carmel? That's precisely what he's doing. And he shows God's power over all of that. They're trying to do miracles. He's actually doing one. Moses and, Moses and uh, Aaron are in Egypt. All the false prophets and all the false uh, 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 sign gift guys, they're trying to repeat what uh, Moses and Aaron are doing. And it gets to the point where they can't do it anymore. It's just beyond them. It was always beyond them. And there are people not only doing, doing these non-verifiable uh, miracles and all this stuff, impersonating apostles, there are people who believe what is false, just like there's going to be people who believe what is false in the future, and just like there's people who believe what is false in the Corinthian church, and before that in, uh, in Elijah and Elijah, and before that in Moses and Aaron. False teachers give the appearance of being a true teacher, like a Halloween costume, and we looked at all of that earlier in chapter 11. And people are deceived and without the love of the truth. In John 17, 17, he writes, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We learn what we need to know and we become sanctified and more like Christ as we understand what the word says. But instead of believing the truth, people are deceived and believe what is false and following men such as the men we saw in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, False apostles, this is, that's what's going on in the church. False apostles, that means they're not doing the true signs of an apostle. They're impersonating them. Deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So, let's put this together. With everything that we know, the truth is, those who claim miracles today can't substantiate that claim. Now, and the reason why we say that is because we have the obvious signs of an apostle and what they were. We don't see that today. Now, if God wants to heal a sick person, he can do that. And I want to make sure we understand that. We may pray for God to heal someone. James 5 actually says, if you're sick, pray and what? Have others pray for you. God may use prayer uh, to heal sickness. He may use medicine to heal the sick. Uh, the ability of a doctor, these things are even part of common grace, as we said before. The ability for a doctor to, to do some things are part of God's common grace on everyone because all good gifts come from the Father from whom there's no shadow of turning, right? Everything that's good about the earth now, every gift that helps mankind is all from the Father. But this is not the day of miracles, this is not the time when God is authenticating messengers and messages because that's the pattern. Because the Bible is finished and it's complete and we live in an age of faith, hope, and love. Right? Hebrews chapter 1 says, in the past, in sundry times and ways, God spoke through prophets and visions and signs, but now he's spoken through his son, Jesus. So it replaces those kinds of things, and we understand that. And when God heals a sick person through prayer, that isn't the same as what he was doing in the New Testament. The miracles in the New Testament were always done with crowds of unbelievers watching and they were filled with awe and they listened to the speaker because they saw something amazing and they heard the message that they might be saved. Modern miracles through modern 
miracle workers, and I put those in quotations, false signs, these, these kinds of things are supposedly happening, but only, listen, and if you look at this and you're honest, only in private, carefully staged religious meetings. People are taught what to do. People are taught how to speak in tongues, what to expect. They're, they are deceived by what's false, false wonders. There are those who get to participate, but they're carefully screened. Tongues and prayer language for, or learned behaviors are marks of holiness, and they're marks of spiritual power, which we don't see anything of that in any of the places in those short periods of time where God verified what was going on, the message and the messenger. None of that. What we, what's claimed today is nothing like the New Testament miracles. Nothing. You know, in the New Testament, people were born blind. Beloved, unformed eyes from John 9. Do you think those kinds of people get invited to healing sessions that go on today? Somebody who doesn't even have any formed eyes in their head? Definitely not. John 9, unformed eyes. Men without working legs. In Acts 14, 8. His legs never worked. He was lame from birth. And as I said last time, if you travel to a third world country, people who are lame from birth travel around in the dirt their whole life. They can't walk. He had unformed legs, came to Jesus, and he was healed. People totally paralyzed. Matthew chapter 4, verse 24. Let down through a hole in the ceiling. We just talked about that a minute ago. Totally paralyzed. Do they get invited to healing sessions? Definitely not. Withered hands, withered arms, Luke 6, 8. Veri and this verifiably dead people being raised. Even in the middle of a funeral that's going on, Jesus walks up and says, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. Everybody's laughing. Dude, she's been dead for a while. Don't tell me she's sleeping. And he raises her. Lazarus from the tomb. Lord, don't open the stone. He's been in there a while. He doesn't smell very nice. Does that matter? No. Not in a true miracle. Verify the dead people. Beloved, I'll, I'll tell you with great sadness. I've done a lot of funerals in 30 years. At least a half a dozen times in the times I've done funerals. I've had people tell me, members of the family tell me, we've invited someone or we are going to pray for his resurrection. Walk up and put their hands on the empty tent that now rests in that coffin, fully expecting to have the power to raise the dead. That is so disturbing and disheartening to me. Because they haven't, they failed to understand the time periods when those went on and what they were done for. You know, verifiably dead people raised. Were there other people dead that day? Sure. I'm sure hundreds and thousands of people dead. What, 59,000 people a minute die? Something like that. Across the world, I mean, there's lots of people who die. Was that all of them raised? No. Only this one. What for? To verify the speaker and verify the message. Are we doing that today? No. We have the speaker and we have the message. And we know that death is a defeated enemy. But we also know that it's a reminder of sin, right? We also know that it's, not, it's a temporary dwelling place for the believer, right? That tent is put in the grave, but it's going to be resurrected. And, give, and made whole. We have all of that hope. We know God's power is at work and all of that. And that's all going to be the future for those who are redeemed. But listen, he's not doing that kind of miracle now. And these people are so disillusioned. And that's what we see all the time from many of these, many of these denominations. People come, I've never spoken tongues my whole life. And they'll say to me, I've been there 20 years. And all I can say in my own heart, praise the Lord. Because the Lord isn't doing that right now. And if you spoke in tongues, you wouldn't be doing it correctly. You'd be doing it with deceiving spirits. Because it was, it was never to specifically speak an unknown tongue to the speaker so that the person who heard uh, could hear the language. It was to communicate what? The gospel and verify that the apostles were meant God, God's men. See? 
And this is very straightforward, I think. I, I don't think we have to, um, we don't have to really support, I mean, we're kind of building this, it's obvious. Masses of people, all kinds of sickness being healed of every kind of ailment. Do you think they're doing that today? Just come, wherever you are, just walk up here, we'll heal you. No, that's not happening. Leprosy, it's obvious you have leprosy. You have no hair and you're covered with sores. Do you think those kind of people are invited to the carefully selected, screened, you know, very publicized healing services? No. But that's what was going on there. Jesus didn't care who came up. Why? Because the power was already there, obviously, but it was to verify that he was the Messiah. And later the apostles to verify the message of salvation. So many could receive that message. Now go back to the text. Look at the signs of a true apostle were performed in you. Look at chapter 12, verse 12, 2 Corinthians. Again, and just, just these are obvious things. If anybody and everybody could claim it like we see today, okay, and like we see even in our own city, I'm claiming the power to, 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 to deliver people from demons. Sorry, pal, you don't, you're not in that subset of Christians who got that power. That, that's not yours, okay? If anybody could claim it, and if they claimed it, they could do it, then mark this, beloved, what would be the point of this passage pointing out the false apostles in Corinth? If anybody could do it. If anybody could do it anytime they wanted to throughout the course of redemptive history, then there wouldn't be signs of a true apostle, would there? That's the whole point of the passage, isn't it? So you could determine who was truly the spokesperson from God. And then you couldn't separate Paul from anyone else. And there would be uh, there wouldn't be anything different about today than the first century and the days of Elijah and Elijah, right? Because whatever power you needed, you had. Because, beloved, they, they were all compressed into those areas for specific purposes. But if it's for anybody, anytime, and you just claim it, and you have enough faith, and you get it, then there's no separation from any of these eras, is there? And it wouldn't be any different from today than during Moses and Joshua's time. If you needed a bunch of gnats to crawl out of the, the Nile River and crawl all over everybody, I mean, if you had enough power, it, it should be yours. And it'd be the same as a tribulation period. But that's true, isn't it? And even the most basic understanding of the patterns of Scripture lets us see that. That's, that's not hard to see. And yet you have these movements led by false teachers who believe that we don't have to settle for anything less than what the apostles had. That's precisely what they say. And that sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, you, you get everything the apostles had. Well, that's a problem because the apostles only had it not to do the specific sign necessarily so that people could be healed, but so that they could be pointed at as the messenger of God, and we don't see that. See? And there's movements that believe that God is empowering people to do the same things that happened in the book of Acts, and that, that it should be true of every generation, even though that's not what we see as a pattern in the word of God, and it's not what we see in church history. God said the miracle gifts would end by themselves, and they did. And you get to the end of Paul's writings, and this is uh, another argument we won't even have time to get into, but you get to the end of Paul's writings in places where it would seem that he would have spoken about miracle gifts when he's talking about the, the armor and he's talking about uh, gifts of the Spirit and all that. He doesn't say anything about any of those. And, and not only that, when he's sick, he has this thorn in the flesh, which we looked at. Perhaps it was a physical ailment. Perhaps it was, it was still painful, but perhaps internal because of the rebellion of the Corinthian church that he couldn't fix. But whatever it was, I mean, Paul could have just gone to a healer, and he just said, okay, be healed, and we'll be good. Right? And when Timothy was having some trouble with his stomach, remember, and he said, hey, take a little wine with your water for your stomach's sake, why didn't he just say, hey, go find a healer in the church? He'll, he'll put his hands on you, be good. We don't see that. And, and this is the main problem with the whole sign, miracle, gift movement. It's this inability to grasp the uniqueness 
of any miracle done through a human vehicle. That is very unique and very limited in very small segments throughout the course of the past and in a very small segment still standing out in the future. There's an exclusivity in those time periods, beloved, and they were done through a human element to verify the speaker and the message. And, and trying to normalize what went on in the first century during that unique time period is about as realistic as trying to normalize Moses and Joshua or Moses, uh, normalize Elijah and Elijah or, or coming later what the two witnesses will do. That's basically this, you're basically doing the exact same thing. Paul said to those uh, who were impersonating the true signs of 2 Corinthians 11, 4, he says, um, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom you've not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Now, as I told you before, the false teachers were probably sitting up in these chairs right here, right? Or maybe on the front row, and, and now he's saying this, and they're like, ooh, he's talking about us. And we looked at that at length a number of months ago, but there's always theological problems with false teachers most of the time. Most of the time, terrible theology. But in particular, trying to normalize the first century into an experience that every era is supposed to have shows a serious lack of understanding of the signs and wonders and miracles, all referring to miracles as to their indication, their effect, and their intent. And Paul reproved the church about that. And we see this a lot, and I see this a lot in the movement, and I've known a number of uh, charismatic pastors who came to me and, and would tell me that they did not go to Bible school, they did not go to seminary. Many of them don't. It's not... It's not uh, exclusive that they don't, but many of them do not. And they just say that, you know, God's Holy Spirit's teaching me. And I get that. Um, I understand. I understand where that's coming from, right? Because when the apostles went out, Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say because when you get ready to speak, I'll what? I'll speak to you. So they, they imagine themselves in that position and that they can speak. So I would say to you this, you know, when I teach, when I teach you, um, I manuscript my message. Now, not everybody does that. Some people just do an outline, and that's great if you're smart like that. I, I tend to forget stuff that I studied if I don't make sure I write it down. So I write it down, wh which means I look down a lot, but I want to make sure I give you what I studied, and I think that that's good. However, the problem with me is, is that uh, ADHD, I want to go down all these other rabbit trails. As soon as I read that, it reminds me of something else I need to say. So here's the question I always have about myself. This is just me, me being transparent. How do I know that what I'm about to say that's not written down here is the Holy Spirit carrying me that way or... Just me carrying me that way and wanting to say something else, see? And I pray every day, and I want you to know this, I pray every day that I don't do just me because that tends to go down a place I probably shouldn't go and, and I say stuff I probably shouldn't say and are not helpful for people, right? Because uh, the, the plant that grows righteousness is, is sowed in peace, right? And so you got to go about it that way. So the question I say to you is this, you know, if you have a thought right now, how do you know that it's the Holy Spirit telling you that thought? Well, the only one way to verify it is you have to, you have to see it in the Word of God, right? Because there's no, like, meter in your, in your, in your head, and you, face, you have this thought, and it's like, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, and then you say another thought, it's like, you, you, you know. There's none of that. You don't know, right? So I say then, and, and just making, you know, this example, it's difficult for me to hear somebody say, okay, you know, I'm just letting the Holy Spirit just leave me alone. We, we have a word for that in seminary. It's called unprepared, Okay. You can't go and give a message. You have to study for it. I mean, you teachers know you don't stand up in front of your class. You haven't looked at any of your stuff. That's going to be bad. Okay, now you might have the knowledge to get through one. That's probably going to be it. After that, it's going to be a lot of repeats. Everybody's going to know fraud. So it's important to recognize, okay, that there's a lot of bad theology, but most of it's because they haven't studied. They don't know a proper approach to the Word of God, how to exegesis, how, you know, no language study. You know, it's difficult. 
contextual things are important. And so a lot of bad theology, but most of the bad theology is just trying to normalize this experience of signs and wonders and miracles, which we see is not normalized and is compressed in very small areas and very small time periods for a specific reason. So Paul says you receive a different spirit which you have not received. Now, what spirit had they received when they believed? Well, they received the Holy Spirit, just like you and I did. And we looked at all this at, at length, and you can go back and look at it, but at the time when a person believes, they receive the Holy Spirit, and we've looked at all of that in other studies. And everything the Lord has for you in relation to the Holy Spirit is given to you at the moment you believe, because it's given to you in, the Bible says, in the full. You've received everything you're supposed to receive. And that is precisely what Paul's indicating here, that what happened to the believers in Corinth at the, at the moment of salvation is they received the true Holy Spirit. But the false apostles came with a different spirit. That's what it means. You receive a different spirit that you've not received. And here's the big danger, see. When the Corinthians received those preachers in their teaching of another Jesus, they were not getting that from the Holy Spirit, whose presence was already in their lives. They were receiving a different spirit. What spirit? Well, false teaching always comes from whom? All false teachers, all false teaching comes from Satan. We just say that categorically. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, but the spirit, what spirit? The Holy Spirit, that's who's speaking here explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. So the Holy Spirit is warning believers that some will fall away. Why? Mark this. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So the true Holy Spirit is saying some will start listening to false teachers, to false spirits, deceitful spirits, and doctrines of demons. And how are they going to hear about it? Well, big surprise. By means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience with, as with a branding iron. So what's that mean? That's just a really ugly way to say false teachers. False teachers are Hypocrisy of liars seared with their own consciences with a branding iron. And what are some of the things a false teacher will say? Well, it's always something uh, that's not biblical, but here in verse 3 it says, men who forbid marriage, advocate abstaining from certain foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. And there's other things, and it's not an exhaustive list, but false teaching always disagrees with what the Word of God says. And we're warned that in the last times there will be many people who will teach falsely and many people who will be deceived. And the simplicity of the love of Jesus, which is found in pursuing his commands and doing them, is lost on them. But with a false teacher, it's always a new revelation. It's always some new nuance. It's some new, un I have a new understanding. I had a vision from the Lord, right? No, some elevated knowledge that's beyond what you can check. And many will say, don't check me. You know, don't, don't, don't Bible check me. Some display the gifts of, that the Lord has, has said have come to an end. And some suppose some great power or miracle working, miracle working is going to be done, right? All in an end to itself. And some people will say, well, I've seen those videos, you know, I've seen a service like that. If what they're doing is wrong, then how are they doing it? And we just read the answer. A different spirit. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctors of demons. That's what's going on in the church in Corinth. We're still in the church age. And it's communicated to the church by the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, otherwise known as false teachers. 1 John 4 tells us the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world today. 1 Timothy 4.1, we just saw it. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So, I mean, it's all over the place. And it's in the church age, and that's what it's looking at. And Paul's in the church age too. And we saw from 2 Thessalonians 2.9 that in the tribulation time there's going to be great activity of Satan. So in the future we're going to see that. All power and signs and false wonders are going to be going on there, just like was going on in the church during Paul's time, like was going on during Moses and Aaron's time, like was going on in Elijah and Elijah's time. It's like what's going on in the modern-day church today. 
because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They didn't read it. They don't understand it. They weren't born again to begin with, and now they're just completely deceived. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what's false. Did you know at some point when you just say, I'm not going to do what I see clearly said in the Word of God, God just gives you a deluding influence? Okay. If that's what you want to do, just, I'm not, I'm just going to let you believe what's false. What do all these things have in common? All these verses have in common. Demons. Doctrines of demons. The things that are going on are not authenticated by the Holy Spirit. Because he's the one communicating the warning in 1 Timothy 4.1, right? These things are being authenticated, if you will, by ancient spirits who were created at the creation of the rest of the universe, who've been around a long time, whose intelligence is far beyond ours. We know they're deceiving spirits, so they're not holy angels. They're demons. They rebelled against the sovereignty of God. They've been deceiving men and women for a really long time and, and making things look authentic and making things look spiritual and making things look powerful. That's why it's so convincing, see? And so seductive. That's why Paul said, I'm afraid you're going to be deceived like Eve was. What's that mean? It's just when she talked to Satan, he told her, God doesn't mean you'll die. It just means you'll be like him. Oh, I didn't understand the whole thing. Now I do. That's what it means to be deceived, see? They've been deceiving people for a long time. They're very, very old. They can't read your mind. They can't be everywhere. But, beloved, they've been around men and women for long enough that they know the trends. False teachers teach a different Christ, and the power comes from different spirits. And Revelation 2 and 3, we have, beloved, and you know this, I've said this before, seven churches of Asia Minor, they're all real churches founded by the Apostle Paul's ministry. They're also representative of churches of every church that's ever existed in its existence and now. And we looked at all that when we studied that letter some years ago. But by the time of John's penning of Revelation around 90, 80, 90, five of those churches are in the same boat as Corinth. Five of the seven have bought some other type of doctrine, has worked its way in. A different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. And so they have to be reproved. Let's wrap up for today. We're out of time. Paul says to these people, look, these guys come and they preach to you another Jesus and they come in the power of a different spirit, developing a different gospel. And at the end of verse 4, and what a sad commentary it is, he says, you bear this beautifully. You just walked right into it. Why? Because you didn't love the knowledge of the truth. You weren't sanctified by the truth didn't understand what it was. Gullible people, people who, who are in love with the Jesus they don't know at all. Bear this beautifully. His fear is legitimate. They should have rejected it. He said at the beginning of our passage, you should have committed me, but you didn't. You should have kicked out the false teachers, but you didn't. What probably happened was, and we see this all the time today, it's not surprising, maybe, maybe someone came and gave an impassioned, sincere message about this is just classic. God can do whatever he wants. I've heard that many, many times. God can do whatever he wants. He's doing that with us now. And we've looked at the falseness of that whole statement. Yes, God can do whatever he wants. But if he says he's not going to do something, or if he says he gives something for some specific purpose, then he's not going to say, oh, forget what I said before. We'll switch. God knows our heart. Heart's deceitful and wicked. No man can know it. We have a passion for a church to live in power. I've heard that many times. We should be living in power. We shouldn't be denying ourselves the power. Why would we want to serve a God we imagined who's no longer the powerful God that we had before? I mean, just, it's, just the approach to the answer to that is just so full of landmines. It's like, what? The God we serve now is not powerful? 
do you understand that all throughout the course of history, there's only been compressed times where he's done these signs, wonders, and miracles? In, in the thousands of years of the existence of people, very small for a very specific purpose. And that's pulled people in because of a lack of discernment, deceived by deceivers, and self-deceived. See, Like the Lord said to false teachers in Hosea's day, so my people are destroyed by a lack, for a lack of knowledge. Why don't they have knowledge? Because the person who's standing here isn't teaching his word, teaching what he thinks, see? And our people are destroyed. You have rejected knowledge. I will also reject you from being a priest. Now, most false teachers will say, we haven't rejected knowledge. We just understand more than you do. The Bible's very clear. You've rejected knowledge. I'll also reject you from being my priest. Since you've forgotten the law of God, I'll forget you, your children. Just so harsh, right? The Lord, you know, the Lord's not open to suggestion. He said how he wants the church to work. He's laid it out very clearly in a pattern. We can see it, and he wants us to do it that way. See? And he doesn't want us to be deceived, and he doesn't want to be us to be self-deceived, and he wants to, us to know what the word says. And he, we, we clearly can see a pattern that's just divergent from what we see in, in New Testament times and back in the Old Testament, and yet people follow it, and they follow it blindly, and they think it's powerful, but they're just deceived, and they're looking at false, false teaching and false works. So when Paul's talking about the signs of a true apostle, which we know had a time and a purpose, and you try to standardize what went on in the first century during that unique time period, it's about as realistic as trying to normalize what Moses and Joshua did. In fact, it's no different. Or Elijah and Elijah. Or coming later, what the two witnesses are going to do. Why would that be any different? Signs, wonders, and miracles. And if you can do whatever they do, and it's all normalized, then it's all up for grabs, right? What went on in those time periods was very unique and for a short period of time. And efforts to set that up as a standard for all times has given way, beloved, to falsehood and deception and wild imaginations and regularly faked, phony, fraudulent credentials. And worse than that, as bad as that is, be not many teachers for those of the greater condemnation. We, we understand if you're a false teacher, the Lord already has your number disillusionment in the hearts of people that you're supposed to be shepherding but you forgot knowledge see and fraud and counterfeit imitations of the worst possible kind bilking people out of billions of dollars all in it for different kinds of reasons listen it's just it's just terrible and so this is one of those footnotes that you got to explain something to get through the passage i hope that it's helped you have a very firm foundation you're not standing on some little narrow ledge beloved Praise on people's desire to feel something or see something powerful. It preys on those who doubt and are looking for faith. It preys on someone who is desperate and wants a miracle. They have some desperate thing going on and they need a miracle. So there'll be plenty of shysters who'll come in and they'll give you what you ask for. And there seems to be more of these counterfeit charlatans all the time. Paul was a real deal, though. You can tell the truth from the false by being sanctified in the truth, beloved. God's word is truth, and that's the gatekeeper for you, and that was the gatekeeper for them, and it's going to be the gatekeeper for all time. Okay. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for a chance to be with the church. We're so grateful to you for um, the fellowship that we have, for the love of the truth, for uh, the love of the gospel, for evangelism, for, for the ministering to one another. Thank you for all the time going on here, all the time, uh, people ministering to each other, people meeting each other's needs, fulfilling the law of Christ, people um, encouraging and giving and all of that. We know that you're working. And faith, hope, and love. We, we act on the things that we understand, Father, and, and you're honored. 
we know that as people use their spiritual gifts in the church, it, it helps people understand you're alive and well working in the church. And we're in this age where we're getting towards the end and we know that people will fall away and follow false things. But Lord, that doesn't mean that we do and it doesn't mean we don't say anything about it. Uh, we don't want to come across as harsh or unkind, just that we don't want to pe see people deceived as we're being deceived in Paul's time and other times. And so, Father, I pray that you will allow your word to work as it should in spite of my inability to deliver it in a clean manner. And Father, as we move on into this day, as we desire to enjoy the, the rest for parade and, and to do ministry there, I pray that you'll open the hearts of people, give us favor there. Father, we might be a blessing to the people around us as we hand them a cup of hot chocolate and a, and a track. Lord, we might be able to, to minister the love of Christ to them. And we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.